thankful to have the opportunity to preach God's word this morning. So thankful for his word. Thankful that, uh, as Pastor Dustin said, that we can be together in person. Um, and this opportunity comes as Pastor Jim and his family have been on vacation this week. So if you will find the gospel of Luke in your copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Luke 3 this morning. Luke 3, so as you're finding Luke 3, as we drop in to hear about, see something from the text on John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist's ministry. So the Gospel of Luke comes to us by way of a physician, a colleague of the Apostle Paul. This is Luke. And he wanted to take the facts of Jesus' life, his public ministry, compile them and deliver him to uh, one of his friends uh, by the name of Theophilus. And we get to read what uh, Luke recorded about Jesus. And he recorded these things about 30 years after, 30 years, just 30 years after the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And so when we see what he includes for us about the details of the ministry of John the Baptist, as we fall into our text here in Luke 3, Knowing this about John the Baptist, that he's the fulfillment of the prophecy hundreds of years earlier that there is going to be one that's going to come and prepare the way of the Messiah for the Messiah. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. And Jesus, as John the Baptist is on the scene, Jesus, he's going to come on the scene and, and start his public ministry just about six months after. And this is coming to us around AD 28. And this is what Jesus says about John, and this is in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, uh, a mark in the history of God's people, a mark in the history of the world in terms of his importance, his significance, his ministry. So we're going to look in Luke 3, uh, starting in verse 7, and just know this, that the scriptures record that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out to him as he's calling on the people to turn to God, to get ready for the coming of the Messiah, to get ready for the judgment and the kingdom of God to come. And he's saying to them, repent, turn from worshiping yourself and turn to God. And it says that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem, they're coming out to him. They're coming to him to see this spectacle, to come and see who's uh, baptizing people, this baptism of repentance in the Jordan River. And he starts there, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. So read with me. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, 
And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. It's integrity, it's clarity, it's power. And I pray that even now, Lord, through the teaching of your word, as we look to uh, what your word says, that our lives would be changed all for your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. So I like to fish. I like to go fishing. Um, There's some glorified ponds basically very close to my house. And especially with long days in the summer, I will go and retreat sometimes in the evenings and go fish. And there have been times early on, maybe when my kids were younger, primarily that they would come with me. And then they realized dad rarely, if ever catches a fish, that's not real fun for the kids. So, you know, I'll go and they'll kind of joke when I come back almost sarcastically. Now they'll ask me like, well, what'd you catch? Knowing that I'm going to say nothing. Right. Um, my wife has been sweet to me this, this summer. She'll, she's been out with me a couple times just to spend time with me and wives. This is a good thing. Recreate with your husbands, even if it's not, not too fun. And, uh, husbands likewise recreate with your wives, but um, my, my joke with her is, is if, not if, when we don't catch anything, I just say, well, there's no fish in there. That's the only reason that we don't catch them. There can't be any fish in there. I would catch them. No. But the question is, can I call myself a fisherman if I don't catch any fish? Can I have that identification or that label that doesn't match the reality typically of what I do? Can I call myself a fisherman if I don't catch fish? So that's a question, it's, that's a hobby, that's insignificant. But an important question, maybe the most important question that comes to us in light of this text is can someone be a Christian? Can someone call themselves a Christian without doing anything that's like Jesus? I was drawn to this text just in my reading of Luke uh, a while back and I love the people's question. I think it's, it's a significant question that they ask of John the Baptist. What then shall we do? That's an important question. Let's look at what we see here because we see what John the Baptist is teaching. And what God tells us from his word is we must truly repent. That's what we see. We must truly repent. So three points we'll see today, three things we're going to walk through today and see first, what is repentance? What is true repentance? How does it happen? And why? Why would anyone want to truly repent? So the first thing is that we will live a life of repentance. The first theme that we see, live a life of repentance. So going back into verse 7, He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him and Matthew, kind of the parallel account of this includes that we know among the crowds were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite of the day. 
So they were among them. They came, came to him to be baptized by him. And he says what? Thanks for coming? No, he says, you brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he's calling them venomous snakes, saying, are you now? Are you now trying to avoid God's wrath? which they would have known from the prophets uh, Ezekiel and Zephaniah that there was a day of wrath coming. But the Jews believed that the wrath was only for or only going to uh, be poured out on the non-Jewish people. It was reserved for non-Jews. But he's saying, do you think that simply observing this rite of baptism, if in fact you want to follow through and let me baptize you, do you think that just following this, uh, observing the rite of baptism delivers you from God's judgment? So John is, is rightly and clearly questioning their motives, questioning their motives for coming to be baptized. So up to this point, baptism had only been administered to Gentile converts to Judaism. They, uh, for Jews to, to be baptized meant that if it was legitimate, if it was authentic, it meant that they needed and they were acknowledging they needed to come to God. Even though they were Jewish people, you know, ethnically labeled as God's people, ethnically descendants of Abraham, that they would say our heritage, our ethnicity doesn't matter. We are anticipating the promised one, the Messiah, and we need to come to God finally and first come to God. So John's hard truth, as he calls them venomous snakes, brood of vipers, it was, he was loving the crowd. It's, it's a hard truth, but what love to say, you have to truly repent. You have to truly repent. So a real turning from worshiping themselves, worshiping other things, a true turning from worshiping themselves or other things to worshiping God reveals the gift of faith from the Father. It reveals true repentance. And John knew that. And John's concern, or his, his discernment here, is legitimate. We see later in Acts 1, remember all the country of Judea, Jerusalem? Well, in Acts 1, after the life, death, and uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ, how many are at Pentecost in the upper room? How many are waiting? It says 120. So his concern is legitimate saying, you must truly repent. And he goes on in verse eight, see, bear fruits, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. If I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's saying, live a life of repentance. Your true repentance will be exemplified. It will be shown in how you live. You must have faith like Abraham. Don't just assume that uh, being a physical descendant of Abraham means you're a child of God. And even now, verse 9, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's saying your life and your mind have to be completely changed, true repentance. And he's lovingly warning the people so they can escape the judgment of God. So what he says with the ax being um, laid to the root of the trees, if the fruit of faith never appears in one's life, if the fruit of faith, if the fruit of true repentance never appears in one's life, then the judgment from God is imminent. It's unavoidable. This is loving concern. This is a loving warning to the people. The judgment faced by those who don't have faith 
when he talks about the picture of that judgment, the eternal conscious torment in hell. What a significant warning, what a significant question for the believer or for those claiming to have repented. What is the fruit of faith? What are the fruits in keeping with repentance? Live a life of repentance? What is that? How do we identify that? What are the fruits that are keeping with repentance in your life? Do you think that observing a religious rite delivers you from God's wrath? Think of this, Donald Whitney, um, Dr. Donald Whitney writes some good books. He writes this, a familiar refrain in the gospels to summarize Jesus's preaching is repent and believe in the gospel. Repenting and believing are two sides of the same coin and must be distinguished, but never separated. The word repent means to change your mind in such a way that results in a change in your life. When by God's spirit, you change uh, your mind about your need for forgiveness and a savior, you change the direction of your life and come to the savior. So how many of us, how many of acquaintances, people we know that we would ask, uh, are you sure you're saved? Are you sure you're going to escape the judgment of God? How can you be sure of your salvation? Begin the answer with, well, I was baptized. Or begin the answer with, I raised my hand at the end of a sermon. I walked an aisle. I've been confirmed. I take the Lord's Supper. I do so many things. So many good things for people. Is that the testimony? Is that an answer to give when asked or when even considering, have I truly repented? How can I be sure that I will escape the wrath of God? Have I been made a child of God? So these are essentially identical answers. Identical answers uh, Jesus said would be given by many at the judgment. Donald Whitney goes on, and this is in his book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? says, these people reveal delusional assurance based upon something done by humans rather than something said and done by God. And this was the Jewish response to John's uh, call for repentance. We're descendants of Abraham, so we will avoid the day of wrath. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, but not by a faith that is alone bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So living a life of repentance means, and it relates to, connects to living a life of action. The life of repentance displays the fruit of faith. True repentance results in action. And this is the precious question we hear the crowd say in verse 10, what then shall we do? And John says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. If you have more than you need, essential goods, you are going to be generous. Generous with the priority being on the poor and the oppressed. You are going to be generous with food and clothing, whatever else is needed. So the first thing, what shall we do? Your faith, your true repentance will result in you being generous. Being known for being generous. And the tax collectors, was there a more hated group in this community? Probably not. The tax collectors that would break the backs of their own people monetarily to uh, get, get the taxes and above the taxes required by the Roman government. So they come to him and they're asking, teacher, what shall we do? Can we be accepted by God? Can we truly repent? 
And what does he say? He, now notice he doesn't say, stop collecting those taxes. He says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Only collect what the Romans order you to collect. Don't seek to profit off your own people. Be honest. Be honest in your role, in your duty. Be generous. Be honest. Soldiers. If there was a more hated group, maybe it could have been the Roman soldiers that were known for their brutality, their paganism, that they, they could have been the escorts of the tax collectors to make sure the people paid up. So they come. They're there on the scene. And they say, and we, what shall we do? And he says, not stop soldiering. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Be content. Be satisfied with what you earn honestly. Be honest. Don't shake down the Jewish people. Be content. Be generous. Be honest. Be content. That's, those are actions. Those are fruits in keeping with repentance. What is the life change that indicates true repentance? Well, there's three specifically there. Generosity, honesty, contentment. Now, if you can imagine, there could be the thought of, well, upon faith, upon the gift of faith being given, and for me to truly repent, then there is going to be such a drastic change that I know my environment must change immediately upon following, right? I, I, I got to change everything. I got to get away from these people. got to get away from this, this maybe secular job I'm involved in. Well, this is not what we see in John the Baptist, who Jesus described as the greatest one, you know, until him that came and changed everybody's life. He says, be generous, be honest, and be content was his instruction. So it's not necessarily, now we know, okay, there's going to be uh, times where we do want to separate from certain people that could have a, a certain influence on us. So there are situations to, to remove ourselves from, and the Spirit will guide us in that. We know also that there was the thief on the cross who just exemplified saving faith and, and never did anything, right? Never bore fruits in terms of generosity or honesty uh, or contentment. We know and we trust that God can, can save people on, the, from, on, their, on, their de on their deathbed, that they can make a confession maybe in the waning seconds or minutes of their life exhibiting true faith and they will be with Christ forever. We know and we trust that. So let's look at, okay, what is the fruits and bearing with repentance? What is this living this life of action for the one that says, I've placed my faith and trust in Christ and he's given me more time on this earth. It's, it's generosity, honesty, contentment, not necessarily changing the environment. If you can imagine this current situation, um, maybe there's a thought that, man, America is, is, is dangerous with COVID. So many cases, certain places, the numbers are on the rise. Well, maybe we just need to go to another country where maybe they have better numbers. It seems to be safer. So what if that move was made? Let's just pick up and move. We got to leave for safety, reason, safety reasons, and we go to another country and come to find out we get there and there it's worse than, than here. They just haven't been testing. So simply a change in the environment leads to no better situation. So it's not always about the environment. 
Your environment, it doesn't determine faithfulness. Adrian Rogers, well-known, prominent pastor, he says, look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Perfect environment. Still, they did not, it did not keep them from disobedience. We aren't called to a monastic life. Like how Tim Keller says, it's uh, don't over-assimilate. That we wouldn't say, well, we're just going to uh, just be so close to to evil and and rampant sin and we're just going to appear no different. Don't over-assimilate, but don't withdraw. Be faithfully present. And if you can see the description of John teaching the soldiers hated, the tax collectors hated, and all the people, he's saying, be content. Be satisfied in your place. Be honest and be generous where you are. Show the fruits in keeping with repentance. It's not necessarily called to this monastic, separated life, but that we'll be faithfully present where God has placed us. And then finally, living a life that believes the good news about Jesus. So we live a life of repentance, living this life of there are actions, there are fruits in keeping with repentance, and it's a life that believes the good news about Jesus, and that is what's known. So John's teaching, the principles here would never be that we think, well, we just want to be known for being nice, right? When you think of generosity, honesty, contentment, that sounds like a nice person. But there has to be a reason, a reason behind that people know about that we are exemplifying what it is to be truly repentant. So in verse 15, the people, they're questioning him. They wonder if if he's the promised one, if John, in fact, is the promised one. And then John's response, he perceives, perceives what they're thinking about him. And he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So he says, I'm baptizing you as an indication, symbolically, that you repent. You're turning from your sins, turning towards God, this sorrow and active pursuit, kind of this external picture. But he's saying the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come. He's saying, I'm unworthy, even the lowest uh, manner of serving him, I'm unworthy of that because he's so much higher. He is perfect. But he's saying, he's coming, he's going to change you internally. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's gonna sort out the faithful from the unfaithful. The faithful are home with him and the unfaithful will be judged to face the wrath of God. And it says with many other exhortations, he preached this good news to the people. So a sobering reminder of the kingdom, what Jesus ushers in, a sobering reminder of how he will separate the faithful from the unfaithful. A sobering reminder, again, that the ax is laid to the root of the tree, of the tree that does not bear fruit, but yet this is described as good news. The Messiah bringing the heart change and bringing true and perfect judgment is good news. So how would assess that we have it better even than with the people on the banks of the Jordan. We have it better and we believe the one who's perfectly generous, 
was always and only honest and content in his relationship with the Father. We get to know and see and read and understand the life and ministry, death and resurrection and ascension of our Savior. He was satisfied, content with the reconciling work of dying on the cross for sinners like me, for sinners like you. He's content in that. He's our example. He's promised the Holy Spirit that's come to empower us to follow his example. The Holy Spirit comes and he's promised that the Holy Spirit comes to the believer's life to empower us to be able to live this life of true repentance, to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, to act upon what has been made uh, real in our lives, to be in Christ. It's all Jesus, his work in us. Now, as we look at thinking, can a Christian, someone claim to be a Christian that does nothing like Jesus, hear this in 1 Corinthians 7.20. Paul writes, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Going back to the idea of, do we, do we have to separate from our environment upon coming to faith in Christ? Does everything, what does it look, how different does it look? He goes on in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 7, 24, each one should remain in the condition he was called, and then 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And Paul says, this is my rule in all the churches as they come to faith. I like how John Piper puts this uh, with relation to verse 24, the let them remain with God, that makes all the difference. With God, that makes all the difference. So for the banker, for the, whoever is, is sitting here, for the parent, for the student, for the one maybe about to leave for college, to the one who's trying to figure out, well, what is this coming semester gonna look like? Are you there? Are you in that? Are you retired? Are you in that phase of life? Are you in that environment? Are you in that life stage with God? Are you there for him to make much of him living in faithful obedience to him? Are you an active known member of this church? Are you here right now to worship God with God makes all the difference. So we think about John's baptism, John's baptism preparatory, showing Jew and Gentile alike that they had to turn from idolatry, had to turn from everything and turn uh, from sin, the predicted end again to their, from their spiritual exile, turn from them and turn to Jesus who ushers in this internal heart change, true perfect judgment, this warning to flee from the judgment and turn to the way of salvation made available by a loving heavenly father, a gracious God, that is good news. That is good news. That fact that there is something, there is one to turn to. We turn from this life, we repent and there is one to turn to. What a gracious God, what good news. So as we think about living in light, again, of repentance, what it means to truly repent, the grace of God has been shown to us. And hear me, grace is not opposed to effort. 
It looks like something. Fruits in keeping with repentance. Look at John, how they asked him, what then shall we do? And he says, here's what you do. Grace is opposed to earning. If we were to ever think, I'll be generous to earn favor from God. I'll be honest so I can escape God's wrath. I'll be content and I'll work on it so I can be known as a Christian. I can call myself a Christian. There's any thought of earning grace. The grace of God is definitely opposed to that. But it's not opposed to effort. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Live in a way that exhibits actions that are consistent with changing from living a life of sin, living a life of self-worship, to living a life, be there with God, living a life of worship to God, being a child of God, blood-bought by the Savior Jesus Christ. Can someone be a Christian without doing anything that is like Jesus? What a question in this text. What then shall we do? You've told us about the coming one. You've told us about judgment. What then shall we do? Jonathan Edwards, famous 18th century theologian, preacher, he says this, assurance, assurance of salvation is not obtained so much by self-examination as by action. What you do, how you live. I have a friend from another church in another state, so this is not an account here of true repentance they had experienced recently in their church. A young couple um, is shared by, with a church member, shares the gospel with this young couple and they come to faith. They say yes to Jesus, they repent. And so what was true repentance gonna look like in their life? They were living together unmarried. So they said, we need to get married. And they were both servers at a restaurant, uh, table servers. And they said for years, they. You, confess this to the pastor. He said, for years, we've never claimed our tips on our taxes. And the response was, we've got a lot to pay back to the government, you know, and we're going to start from here on out. We're going to be honest. We're going to live as child of God. So uh, thankful for God's grace. And, and that was this, it wasn't a complete change of environment. It was just a change of life. True repentance looks like something. If we say we follow Jesus, if we say we adhere to his word, but don't spend time every day with our father, spend time in prayer, spend time reading the Bible. And yes, at times studying the Bible. If we don't do that, if we don't daily have this act of repentance saying, I'm not in charge, you are. That's not the reflection of our life. We lie. We lie to an unbelieving world that needs nothing else except to say to our heavenly father, I'm tired of being in charge. I want you to be in charge. That's what they need. That's what they need to see. And the fruits in keeping with repentance are born out and come out of uh, an overflow of our time with Jesus daily. That's true repentance. 
It's not a one-time thing that happens. It's over and over by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. We lie to an unbelieving world that says we're in charge. Can can someone be a Christian, call themselves a Christian, and not do anything like Jesus? Jesus spent time with his father. We have example after example in the gospel records in Luke about how Jesus, the perfect God-man in his incarnation, spent time with the father, praying all night in some cases, knew the word. That's the example set for us. So if we don't do that, we're hypocrites at best. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you're too good to us. Lord, your grace, your, your unmerited favor poured out through us through Jesus is the best news, most amazing news we've ever received. And it's the best, most amazing news anyone could ever receive. So I just pray, Lord, that our church, our local church here in Glen Allen, that we would bear fruits in keeping with repentance. All for your glory, God. Because we need you and our delight and our joy and our satisfaction only comes from you, Father. That's my prayer in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.